Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. I want to talk today about a question that comes up from time to time, and that is, should ministry leaders, pastors, youth pastors, seminary professors, uh, should ministry leaders uh, drink alcoholic beverages? Now, this question comes up from people who uh, have a lot of different reasons and motivations for raising the question and a lot of different reasons and uh, positions or perspectives on the answers. And I'm going to get to those in a few minutes. Uh, But before I do, I want to talk about why this has come up again for me recently. On January 1st of this year, uh, one of our employees here at Gateway was involved in a serious auto accident. He was uh, hit by a drunk driver and has suffered some pretty serious injuries. Uh, He has uh, been waiting now for some time for his body to recover enough from the accident to have some restorative surgery. Uh, to work on some uh, not only broken bones, but also, uh, you know, muscle and uh, soft tissue injuries. And so uh, we're praying and working toward his full recovery. Fortunately, his injuries, while they're serious, weren't life-threatening, and we're grateful for that. A second thing that motivated me to talk about this issue today is a study that came across my desk from the National Institute of Health. Uh, It's a study about uh, causes of death in the United States. Uh, And the second leading cause of death in 2017, which is the last year that now complete data has has been gathered, uh, the second leading cause of death is alcohol and alcohol-related illnesses. Now, that struck me as interesting because there's so much in the media these days about drug uh, and drug-related illnesses, particularly the opioid epidemic, that I would have thought that by now it had surpassed alcohol as a problem in our culture, but that's simply not true. Uh, In 2017, more people died from alcohol and alcohol-related illnesses than died from drug and drug overdose and drug-related illnesses, including the opioid epidemic. So while I'm not saying the opioid situation isn't serious, it is. The data shows that alcohol is still a much more serious problem in our culture. Uh, There are some other alarming statistics that came out of this study by the National Institute of Health. For example, uh, the rate of death by alcohol and alcohol-related illnesses in the U.S. has doubled in the past uh, 20 years. In 1999, there were only about 36,000 people that died for this reason. But by 2017, it was more than 73,000. So alcohol-related deaths have more than doubled in the past 20 years. And what's really sad about that is who's dying at a greater rate, and that's women. Uh, The use of alcohol, including uh, the prevalence of drinking and binge drinking among men, has remained fairly constant over the past two decades. But for women, it's increased, the use of alcohol has increased by 10.1%, and the prevalence of of binge drinking has increased by 23.3%. So what this tells us is, that while men are drinking about the same and binge drinking about the same as they have for the past two decades, women have shown a dramatic increase in both alcohol use and binge drinking as an expression of alcohol use. Now, uh, in terms of adults over 18, another interesting statistic from the study is that 70.1% of adults over 18 in, in America drink alcohol. And they drink, get this, 
an average of 3.6 gallons of pure alcohol per drinker. That is a lot of alcohol. Now, in the context of these two um, things that came across my path at the beginning of this year, this accident caused by a drunk driver and this study from the National Institute of Health, uh, I wanted to address the issue of just how serious is, is alcohol consumption and, uh, as an issue and whether or not ministry leaders, pastors, youth pastors, seminary professors, uh, people like us, whether we should participate and use alcohol or whether we should adopt an abstinence policy for our lives. Now, the people who say to me that it's permissible for ministry leaders to use alcohol, in fact, some would say even desirable for ministry leaders to use alcohol, typically give me uh, three or four reasons. The first one is usually, well, the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol. And that may very well be the case. Uh, there are examples of alcohol use in the Bible, and uh, there are actually even verses that encourage some use of alcohol, like the famous passage in Timothy about Paul take, or advising uh, Timothy to take a little bit for his ailments. Uh, and then, so the Bible doesn't necessarily prohibit alcohol use. Uh, second, they say, well, the Bible does prohibit drunkenness and alcohol abuse, but that just simply means I, learn, I need to be an example of moderation in alcohol use so that people who follow me will follow that same example. Uh, another reason that ministry leaders sometimes give me for the permissibility of using alcohol is that throughout history, uh, prominent ministry leaders have used alcohol, and today in global Christianity, uh, many Christians, including many ministry leaders around the world, uh, use alcohol, and no one really seems alarmed by that. And then finally, appealing to my uh, interest in evangelism and in, cultures, in culturization and uh, trying to be as connected as I can with lost people for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them, people say, well, uh, abstinence is an unrealistic or an unnecessary uh, legalistic barrier to having relationships with unsaved people. Uh, so these are some of the reasons why people give me for uh, the permissibility or even the desirability of uh, ministry leaders using alcohol. But in the face of that, um, I've had a personal position of not using alcohol throughout my ministry, and uh, our seminary has an abstinence policy expecting both employees and students to not use alcohol while they're associated with the seminary. Now, before I get to the reasons for that and some reasons why I think you'd be wise to adopt a no-alcohol policy as a ministry leader, uh, let me tell you a, a couple of stories that help you uh, see some of the flavor of where I'm coming from. A few years ago, uh, Gateway, at Gateway, I had an assistant who uh, was a recovering alcoholic. In fact, while she was working at the seminary, she celebrated 70, uh, excuse me, <laughs> 25 years uh, of sobriety. Uh, she uh, was very grateful to God and pleased with her success and shared it with us. And we had a little party and actually celebrated her 25 years. While we were doing that, she was telling me her story. She said, many years ago, my husband and I uh, degenerated into alcoholism. Uh, it uh, wrecked our finances. We both lost our careers. Ultimately, we lost our home, and we really hit rock bottom. But she said we came out of it. We made a commitment to sobriety. Uh, we uh, got our lives back in order. We rebuilt our finances. We got a new house. We got our careers back on track, and we were doing well. And then she said one day I came home, 
and my husband was sitting there drinking a beer with a six-pack in the refrigerator, and he said, you know, it's been long enough. I think I can handle this now without it controlling my life. And she said within just a couple of months, he had degenerated back into a, a full alcoholic a lifestyle, ultimately uh, lost his job, ultimately left her, and their finances were once again in ruin before the divorce was final. She told me these stories because she wanted me to understand the personal pain she had lived through and how much her sobriety meant to her and how really uh, proud she was of her accomplishment of going 25 years uh, without alcohol. Uh, and then I told her my story. Uh, mine's quite different. I was uh, I, uh, raised in an alcoholic home and am the son of a violent alcoholic biological father. And so I grew up around alcohol and alcohol use and alcohol abuse. So when I was a boy, only around 10 years old, I made the decision that alcohol wasn't going to be a part of my life. I, I did so not because I had any Christian convictions. I wasn't a Christian yet. Uh, nor did I have any perspective at all that I would ever be a ministry leader and that I would ever go into any kind of work like I'm doing today and that uh, that had nothing to do with my decision. As a 10-year-old boy, I simply looked at the destruction that alcohol had brought into my life and thought, I do not want to be a part of this, and I don't want this to be any part of my life ever. And so I made the decision as a boy that alcohol wasn't going to be a part of my life, and I've maintained that commitment uh, throughout my entire lifetime. Now, my assistant uh, made this observation. She said, you know, when I tell people I stop drinking, they celebrate me as some kind of hero. When you tell people you've never drank, they look at you like there's something wrong with you and that you're some kind of legalist or uh, some kind of person who has a, uh, an unrealistic viewpoint on life. She said, that just makes no sense to me. And she laughed and said, you need to not tell people that you don't drink. Just tell people you stopped drinking a long time ago. And that is the same thing I did, and you'll get the same response I've gotten. Well, I haven't used her counsel, but I do find it humorous that she was exactly right. Uh, she's celebrated for her sobriety. I'm considered a legalist for my abstinence, and yet both of us have come to the same place in life, but from different for, down different paths. Well, uh, with all of that background, uh, let me talk a little bit now about why I really believe that the best policy for ministry leaders is to avoid uh, using alcoholic beverages. And to do that, I want to talk through some of the reasons here at Gateway Seminary that we've adopted this policy. And I think some of these same reasons would be applicable to you. Uh, we don't really try to argue those points that I mentioned earlier about why people think it's a positive thing. We just try to make some reasoned uh, explanation of why we think ours is a better policy. The first one is this. We, we have an abstinence policy, and I would advise one for you as a ministry leader, out of deference uh, to our Southern Baptist family and the support they provide in our lives. Now, Gateway Seminary is owned by the Southern Baptist Convention, and over the years, Southern Baptists have adopted many resolutions uh, on the issue of alcohol and abstinence. Southern Baptists for decades have had the same positions, that they, that they expected abstinence among believers and required it among ministry leaders. Now, of course, resolutions by the Southern Baptist Convention are not binding on anyone. They're simply strong statements of opinion by the convention gathered. But nevertheless, they do have the force of being a strong statement of opinion and of telling us where most Southern Baptists stand on this issue. 
Now, we're owned by the Southern Baptist Convention, and we feel like since they provide us fi uh, financial support, they provide us prayer support, and they are our best ministry partners by employing the most of our students who go out from among us, that we have to show deference to them. I would say the same thing to you as a ministry leader if you're working in a Southern Baptist ministry context. Uh, you're depending on Southern Baptist people to give money to support your ministry. You're depending on Southern Baptists to pray to extend the ministry you're doing. If you've attended a Southern Baptist seminary in any capacity, you've received funding from Southern Baptists through the cooperative program. If you've ever worked for the North American Mission Board or the International Mission Board, or you've ever been on a mission trip in cooperation with missionaries supported by either of these entities, you've benefited from what Southern Baptists have provided in your life. Southern Baptists are a great big family, and if we're going to take from them financial support, prayer support, strategic support for our mission, we need to show deference to them and be a part of the standards that they've adopted or that they've, that they've at least recommended through this resolution process. So deference to our brothers and sisters in our family is one reason. A second reason the seminary has an abstinence policy, and I would advocate the same thing for you as a ministry leader, is the seminary simply will not or cannot devote time or financial resources to resolve the issues that would inevitably arise if we sanctioned alcohol use. Here's what I mean. If we sanctioned alcohol use here at the seminary, we would have to police it. We would have to monitor it. And we would have to clean up the damage done by people who slipped from using into abusing alcohol. Suppose, for example, we allowed alcohol uh, to be openly consumed in our student housing. So imagine a bunch of seminary students having a barbecue or throwing a party and alcohol being freely served. I mean, why not have a kegger? I mean, open up the booze and let it flow. <laughs> That's what we'd be saying. Alcohol use is permitted, so go ahead. Well, from that, imagine the responsibility the seminary would be taking. We'd have children present who would see their parents and others uh, using alcohol and see it as a good example to be set and maybe to be followed. And no doubt there'd be some children who eventually would say, I want to sneak some of that out and try it. And so on our campuses, uh, children would be trying alcohol for the first time. And then beyond that, um, uh, as alcohol abuse slipped into abuse for some, think about uh, the damage that would be done in marriages and the counseling we'd have to provide and the extra work that it would take to keep those marriages together while they're trying to recover from what's happened to them on our campus. And then think about the damage that might be done to our property uh, by the negligence that comes from people who've had too much to drink or even the damage that's done by people who find themselves uh, drunk. So the seminary have to police all of that and manage all of that and spend money to make sure that all of that was managed. And then think about it this way. Suppose we served alcohol at seminary events. You know, the courts in America are finding more and more that if you serve alcohol, you have some responsibility for what happens to the people who consume alcohol. And that's why people get carded at every restaurant and people are trained to... Uh, measure alcohol use and alcohol abuse and how much alcohol people are receiving at restaurants and bars and things like that. And um, that's why there are designated driver programs and other kinds of ways that businesses can monitor and manage alcohol consumption that takes place um, through, uh, by, their, by their means. The seminary have to do all those same kinds of things. And just imagine me trying to justify uh, not paying faculty or not hiring other staff to support our academic program because I'm having to divert resources to manage the use or abuse of alcohol on the seminary campus or through the seminary's programs or in the seminary's uh, uh, work and life. We simply aren't going to do that. And I would say the same thing to you as a ministry leader. Do you have to, are you really willing 
to allocate resources to purchase alcohol, uh, to manage the use of alcohol, and to de deal with the, the consequences of alcohol use uh, through your ministry organization as you facilitate it. I really don't think that's a wise use of God's resources, and so stewardship is a big issue. A third issue for us is the issue of example. Uh, the seminary recognizes that most Southern Baptist churches and ministry organizations require abstinence, and they expect the same thing from future leaders because we're setting an example for the people who follow after us. Now, I don't think some people fully grasp how powerful ministry leaders are at, as an example. Here's what I mean. I recently had a person tell me one of the reasons that I know that I can continue to abstain from alcohol when it's such a temptation in my life is I see you doing it. I was surprised by that. He said, I see you being strong in this area, therefore I know I can be strong in this area. Now, ministry leaders are not expected to be perfect people. We know that. But we are models of Christian decorum and examples of what it means to live the Christian life. And so as people look at us, they say, you're able to build a strong marriage. I know I can build a strong marriage, too. You're able to be a good parent. I know I can be a good parent, too. You're able to have uh, a good relationship uh, with, uh, with, with, with people in the community who are critical of you. I know I can learn to do that, too. We set examples in all these kinds of areas, and we want people to follow us as we set an example in those areas. Listen, people are also looking at you and saying, you seem to be able to make it through life as a ministry leader without self-medicating. You're not using drugs. You're not using alcohol. You're not overeating to satisfy uh, emotional desires. You're taking control of your body, and because you're doing it, I know I can do it too. And so when people look to us as an example, they're looking to us as an example in lots of areas of life. And I don't want to make this out to be that ministry leaders have to be perfect and up on a pedestal and we can't ever make a mistake. That's not the point. The point is that we're living life. And we're going through the same challenges and turmoils and difficulties and temptations that all the people around us are going through. And we're supposed to be examples of overcoming most of those. Now, when we make a mistake, we're also an example of confessing what we've done, making it right, receiving forgiveness, and moving on. That's because we're not perfect people. But just because we're not perfect doesn't mean we're not still examples and we aren't someone that other people can look to and say, I want to be like that and I can do what you're doing. Man, there's so many stories I could tell about this, but um, one of the most meaningful was, uh, happened with my wife a number of years ago. A family came into our church and this family had every kind of problem imaginable, from alcoholism to incest to uh, uh, divorce to um, intermingled marriages. I mean, I just can't go into it. This family was in crisis, to say the least, when we found them and the gospel started transforming them. Now, they had a youngest child who was just a little girl at the time. She came into a ministry that my wife was leading for girls, and for the next five to six years, uh, she was a part of that ministry, and she grew from being a girl to being a mid-aged teenager under my wife's direction and leadership. And my wife, uh, as she would, was an example of uh, chastity and an example of purity and an example of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, abstinence and an example of family and an example of what it meant to treat people in a kind way. My wife was an example to this girl. Uh, 
Well, uh, we left that church and moved away, and some three or four years went by, and uh, this girl went off to college. We, of course, didn't know any of that, and a couple more years went by. And then one day, after we'd been gone about five or six years, we got a, a letter in the mail from this girl, and it was addressed to my wife, and it was an invitation to her graduation from Iowa State University with a degree in journalism. And she said, Dear Ann, your example inspired me. I saw in you the kind of woman that I knew I could be someday. Despite the difficulties in my family and what I had had to live through as a child, you showed me that a better way was possible. And I just want to thank you uh, for giving me the hope and the inspiration and the confidence that I could become something different than I had started out to be in my life. Now, that was years after my wife had stopped having influence in this girl's life, but that's the kind of powerful example a ministry leader can be. Listen, ministry leaders, you have no idea how many people are watching you. And I'm not talking about uh, other adults who are out there uh, Facebooking about what they're seeing you do. I'm talking about 8- and 10- and 12-year-old boys and girls who are watching you and saying, wow, they can live without drugs. Everybody in my family uses drugs, but they don't. I want to be like them. They, they, they don't use alcohol. They don't use curse words. They treat each other with kindness. They show respect to people. Uh, they, they, they went to school. They, they made something of themselves. I want to do the same thing. You have no idea the example that you're setting and the influence that you're having, and don't underestimate that, especially as it relates to things like alcohol use. Another reason that we have an abstinence policy here, and I'd advocate it for you, is just what I call the wisdom policy. Uh, we recognize that while the Bible doesn't expressly forbid uh, using alcohol, the Bible speaks of a higher decision-making mechanism than just yes or no, black and white, what the Bible prevents and what the Bible doesn't. That higher decision-making uh, strategy is what I call the wisdom principle, and that is, is it wise? Is it wise? You know, the Bible really doesn't have a verse that I'm aware of about smoking. But most people today would say, don't smoke. You're destroying yourself. You're killing yourself. You're doing great damage to yourself. Stop it. Why? Because it's wise. Why would you do something to yourself that you know is going to be destructive? Well, the wisdom principle applies also to alcohol. It's just wise. Uh, we know because of medical advances and because of what we understand about the human body and because of what alcohol does to it, we know that it is not wise to put alcohol into the human body. It's just simply not wise. And so stop it because it's not wise, not because you can chapter and verse a prohibition and you're going to do everything in life you can that doesn't have a chapter and verse prohibition. Well, you're going to do a lot of things that are really harmful to yourself if that's your attitude. So use the wisdom principle in decision-making, not just the black and white, I'm going to do whatever I can get away with principle. And then another issue is safety. Uh, the use of alcohol creates an unsafe environment. It creates an unsafe environment in your home and in your community. And like my friend experienced recently in his car, uh, there is simply no way that you can deny that use of alcohol creates an unsafe environment wherever it's being used. That, that's why there's still drug and alcohol testing for people who operate machinery and drive trucks and uh, run assembly lines. Because if you're going to do all those things and you're going to be using alcohol in that context, your company knows that you're simply not going to be safe in doing it. That's why they can randomly drug test you because they want to be sure that people are operating their machinery or their vehicles in a safe manner. 
So the safety issue, why would you take unnecessary risk and do something that you know is going to create an unsafe environment around you or in the vehicle you're riding in? And then finally, uh, for us, it's just a matter of employment. We, we know that our future graduates are going to go to places mostly where the churches are going to expect their ministry leaders to abstain from alcohol. And so we want them to get in the habit of doing that uh, while they're students so that when they go out in ministry leadership, they'll find it to be an easy transition into the church setting where they're working. And I would say the same thing for most of you. Uh, most of you who are employed in ministry settings will find that that's either a condition of your employment or an expectation of your employment. And if you're interviewing and talking with other people about becoming employed where you're employing people, you're going to find that that's often something you're going to want to raise as a condition of employment with them. So just go ahead and settle it. Just go ahead and settle it. Abstinence is a policy, and then you don't have to worry about it in any employment context now or in the future. Well, as you can hear from this podcast, I believe that the best policy for ministry leaders is abstinence. I think uh, using alcohol is unwise. I think it creates an unsafe work and life environment. I think it's a bad example of poor stewardship of financial resources, and I think it ignores the deference that we should have toward our brothers and sisters, especially here at the seminary who are spending so many millions of dollars supporting us through the cooperative program. For us to then say we're not going to defer to some of your convictions or wishes, uh, our statements of strong opinion is really unwise and I think um, arrogant on our part. So for all of these reasons, uh, we have an abstinence policy here at Gateway. I have an abstinence policy as a ministry leader, and I would advocate uh, the same for you. Now just to wrap it up, let me go back to a couple of other issues that I mentioned earlier, and that is... Uh, Some people still say, yeah, okay, I get that, but, you know, global Christians don't have a problem with this, and quite frankly, I need to really connect with my unsaved community. Well, you know, uh, global Christians may not have all the information you have, may not have the perspective that you have, and certainly don't live in the setting that you live. I don't think that argument really holds up as a standard-bearing argument on this issue. And then about this issue of identifying with lost people. Look, I have worked in every kind of secular imag- setting imaginable. Uh, I've had every kind of social encounter with lost people that you can pretty much imagine. And I have not one time ever had my unwillingness to drink alcohol be a barrier to my sharing the gospel. Um, I can have a sparkling water or a soft drink, and it's no big deal. You know, most lost people that you're so concerned about uh, creating a barrier, most of them, have friends who also don't drink for different reasons. You know why they don't drink? Because they're alcoholics and they're recovering. And their lost friend would never say, oh, you've got to have a beer with me if you're going to be my friend. They'd say, hey, no, I understand you've had a problem here, and I certainly don't want to press this on you. They're not as legalistic about this as you think they are, and they're certainly not holding it against you as much as you think they might be. So I'm simply saying it's possible to be an effective ministry leader with an evangelistic presence in the community who lives appropriately in a global Christian environment and have a policy that says, I just don't drink alcohol. I'd advise that to be your policy for all the reasons I've mentioned in the podcast today, and I hope you'll adopt it as your personal standard as you lead on.